The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. Today's episode will be rare. It's almost timely. I've not trolled through the archives and found some old television show from the dawn of time that no one else has ever seen, or even one that was moderately popular that I'm not aware of. No, today I will be looking at a brand new comic that came out but weeks ago. Amazing Spider-Man number one from this here year of 2022. It probably goes without saying there'll be spoilers, but I'll say it anyway, for those of a sensitive disposition. There'll be spoilers here. Into the script. It's been a rough time to be a fan of The Amazing Spider-Man. Not in film, obviously. The Tom Holland starring Marvel movies have been genuinely entertaining. A different kind of Spider-Man from the one we're used to in the comics? Sure, but no less enjoyable for all that. The most recent movie, No Way Home, was a crowd-pleaser in every way, showing you can give the audience what they want in a way that isn't subversive, deconstructionist, or grimdark, while still being in their own way. All of those things, but while still retaining the core of the character. Even the animated film, Into the Spider-Verse, was a joy, with groundbreaking animation, a heartfelt story, and characters we cared about, despite still being slightly different to how we were used to seeing them portrayed. So, why can't the comics get it right? I mean, you'd think the medium that birthed the character would be the one to be the most consistently correct, right? Well, not so much. Spider-Man in the comics has been stuck in a rut for nearly 15 years. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. But Andrew, you're thinking, you've been banging on for years about how Peter Parker worked best as a young man in high school or college, and how his ageing up has kind of taken away from what made him special, and how being married was a massive mistake. Well, yes, lovely listener, all of that is true. However, I have also said that the first half of writer J. Michael Straczynski's run was an actual adult take on the character, by which I mean an adult was writing it, not somebody in a case of arrested adolescence, and how the Spider-Girl series that followed Peter and his wife Mary Jane as they entered their mid-forties with a now 15-year-old daughter who inherits her father's powers has been one of the best Spider-adjacent comics of recent times. What can I say? I'm complex. I contain multitudes. It's possible, however unlikely, that I did like a grown-up Peter Parker when he was handled properly. If the medium embraced ageing Peter, then maybe, just maybe, I was wrong. Maybe it could work. Again, 
I rather like the comics miniseries Spider-Man Life Story that took this idea and ran with it. However, the comics have, in my opinion, done this idea badly. Peter is suddenly a sad sack with nothing happening to him that can be considered good fortune. He's always a loser, unreliable, terminally 22 with no direction, no goals, no ambition. This in and of itself has potential. How would Peter Parker make ends meet in today's economy? Would he have to compromise himself to get a picture of Kim Kardashian in the toilet? After all, in an era where everyone has a camera phone, images of a Spider-Man wouldn't be that special. How could he even afford to live in a New York that has outpriced him? How would he balance his scientific goals and ambitions in a world where people openly doubt what scientists have to say? And how difficult would it be to maintain his secret in a world where camera phones and CCTV are ubiquitous? What are his relationships like in this new era? Could Glory Grant be gay? Would Harry Osborn be gender neutral? All of these are fascinating directions to take a new, modern, up-to-date look at Spider-Man in. But sadly, Marvel have shown no interest in updating the strip in this way. Rather, they choose to make Peter a wanderer, moving from one creative team to the next, never settling on a direction for him as each writer who comes in changes whatever it was he was doing before. And each time they do it, we get another Amazing Spider-Man number one. So, after a new number one in 1998, and a brand new day in 2008, and a superior number one in 2013, we got another new number one in 2014, and then another in 2015, and then another in 2018, finally leading to, you guessed it, a new number one in 2022. What can we hope to see as a new creative team? I say new, take Peter Parker in startling new directions. Well, first of all, as I alluded to, this new creative team is nothing of the kind. The writer is Zeb Wells, who has written Spider-Man off and on for about a decade now. The artist team is even older, with penciler John Romita Jr. having an association with Spider-Man that dates back as far as 1981, and inker Scott Hanna going back to the early 90s. Some people were a bit aghast at Romita's return. John Romita Jr. has undergone a spectacular artistic metamorphosis over the years and hasn't always appealed to many people. As much as I loved his Spider-Man and X-Men work in the 80s and the 90s, he suddenly started to become blockier and more expressionistic as he went along. In some cases, Daredevil, The Punisher and a return to Spider-Man, this was fine. However, his work over at DC on Superman was... not to my tastes, to be charitable. I am quite happy to report that, for the most part, the art here is a return to the more familiar look of his Spider-Man work of the late 90s, early 2000s, rather than that controversial DC work I mentioned. Story-wise, this is more of a mixed bag. First, let's get the usual criticism out of the way. This isn't a story, blah, blah, blah. It's a teaser, blah, blah, blah. It's all set up and no payoff, blah. It's the first part of a larger story, blah. And looking just at this issue is doing a disservice to the writer's vision, blah, blah, blah. You've heard it all before. I've said it all before. Other people have said it all before. And I get what you're saying in response to these criticisms, but... 
if I'm spending £5 on a single comic, it'd damn well better feel like value for money, irrespective of if it's a chapter in an overarching storyline. The issue itself, as far as I can ascertain, doesn't seem to have a title. The credits are saved for the end, because nothing says I want to be a movie and not a comic than having the credits at the end. The credits are spread over two pages. I'll say that again. The credits are spread over two pages. I'm sorry, I don't consider those story pages. There is no need to have the credits take up two pages other than laziness or padding or a deadline crunch. Delete as applicable. However, that is not the most egregious use of a two-page splash. Oh no, dear listener. After an intriguing opening page where we see Peter Parker, his costume torn to shreds because that's the new visual for Spider-Man to show he's had a rough day, sat in a smoking crater, we get another magnificent use of real estate. Two pages to say six months later. I'm not kidding. Two pages. Big uppercase white letters on a black background that state six months later. Two pages. Two. We are told the crater is outside York, Pennsylvania. No other context is given, as this has been the big teaser for this story. Peter has done something we know not what. It's not a bad setup. We have questions, as we should, for a new story. And we don't need it all spelling out straight away. Teasing the story isn't a bad thing to do, necessarily. More setup happens over the next three pages, as Aunt May and Peter have a heart-to-heart. May looks like she's been de-aged again, which again is, is fine. No one wants her to go back to looking like Skeletor's older sister. But at this rate, give it five more years and she'll be all of 40 years old. Anyway, whatever Peter did, it's called mate after downsize her apartment. But this event is so cataclysmic, Peter can't even tell her what it is that he did. She believes whatever it was he did for the right reasons. But she's still disappointed. It's a good scene, a fine scene. There's no need for it to be three pages long, although the writer would argue pacing, but at least six panels could be eliminated without upsetting the pacing at all. Peter is then accosted on the steps of his apartment by a debt collector. Peter owes serious money. We are not given a clue as to what or why. Peter shows no interest in the guy or even in paying the debt. Randy Robertson is also waiting outside Peter's apartment. Randy has been paying rent even though he doesn't live there anymore. How much does Randy make? Peter is rude and dismissive. Randy tells Peter he's marrying Janice. Randy is not Peter, and he could do with some support, asking her father for Janice's hand in marriage. He also points out that Peter's place is a mess, and is that why he can't bring Gog around anymore? No attempt is made to explain who Gog is and who Janice is, nor who her father is. The mystery of where Peter has been and why he's on the outs with his friends is part of the overall storyline of the new arc. So, fine, we don't expect any clarification on that score. But we could do with a minor reminder of who Gog is. We are told, as the story unfolds, that Janice is Tombstone's daughter. And the scene transition tells us that Tombstone is a major underworld crime figure who is currently at a meeting with other major underworld crime figures. But we aren't told who any of them are. The White Rabbit is there, 
the rose, hammerhead. I think that's Mr. Negative, and it looks like a crime master. But come on, Marvel. Let's at least pretend there are new readers coming to this new number one. How many of those people are supposed to remember the White Rabbit? The point is to bring in new readers, right? I mean, I'm here for the return of crime noir Spider-Man stories, though, so a mob underworld story is right in my wheelhouse. The previous two writers focused on different elements. Dan Slott liked the fantasy science aspect. Nick Spencer wrote a sitcom before morphing into spending far too many issues eliminating from continuity a 15-year-old storyline that nobody really cared about anymore. So getting back to some good old-fashioned underhand crime lord backstabbing is a good idea. The Kingpin is apparently out of the loop again. Tombstone is looking to consolidate his power. The Rose, who is the Kingpin's son, wants to share the territory. Digger, from the Straczynski run, is also back as the Rose's muscle. I don't know anyone who's crying out for his return, but he's a fun character in his own way, and Ramita seems to like drawing him. These scenes were the best in the issue. I like Tombstone, and as I've said, when I covered the lead Ditko Ramita stuff, I'm a big fan of crime noir Spider-Man stories. I have issues with how Ramita draws Tombstone, in that he looks quite different from how he used to look, but whatever. Marvel doesn't seem to have model sheets anymore. Back at the Peter Parker place, the Human Torch shows up to drive home this plot point that Peter is on the outs with everybody, including the Fantastic Four. The Torch can no longer flame off for reasons I'm sure are part of whatever is going on over in the Fantastic Four Zone book, but I haven't got a clue what that is. I haven't read the FF since I quit the Fantastic Cast. Peter is quite obnoxious here as well. Whatever happened, the Torch is extending the hand of friendship and Peter just bats it away. We've seen a lot of these types of forced dramatic situations, where if the characters just sat down and talked it out, the drama would be over. It's very soap opera, but that's fine, because Spider-Man was a superhero soap opera. But that doesn't stop it from being contrived. Randy's meeting with Tombstone is a funny beat. He's essentially asking this big-time crime lord for his permission to marry his daughter. This is following on from B-plot, left dangling from the last run, where Randy started dating a supervillain who turned out to be Tombstone's daughter. That was a decent part of the whole sitcom feel of the last run, and Randy's essentially one of the few normal people Peter has left in his life. It now feels like everyone Peter associates with is either a super, or related to one, or has died and got better. There are very few normal people left in the supporting cast. The character dynamics are more interesting here, though, because Randy's dad, Robbie Robertson, has a past with Tombstone, something only alluded to here, but it does make for interesting backstory. Peter isn't a totally terrible friend. He did go to the meeting to back Randy up, but Randy didn't end up needing it. Tombstone was quite accommodating. After leaving Randy to it, Peter spots the White Rabbit up to no good and switches to Spider-Man. This action beat is well-received and well-placed. The colouring by Marcio Menis, which I think is how you pronounce that name, I apologise if I've got that wrong, is particularly good. The White Rabbit is a great character. Created by James DeMathis, she was essentially Harley Quinn before Harley Quinn, a funny, somewhat deranged thief and bank robber with a Lewis Carroll fixation. Wells doesn't quite nail the funny as well as DeMathis did, though, with Rabbit coming across as predictably insane rather than funny. She should 
be more like an evil version of Howling Mad Murdoch from the A-Team rather than a modern-day Joker. Wells does much better with Spider-Man's sense of humour, though, and that's what counts when writing a Spider-Comic. Spider-Man's banter with Digger is quite funny, but not in a stand-up comedy way like Dan Slott wrote, more of a bouncing-off-what-the-other-says kind of way. The fight ends, as fights in the middle of an issue always do, inconclusively. Mary Jane returns a call Peter made earlier, from inside her closet. She tells Peter to never call her again. This was the most curious beat in the issue. Previous writers have gone out of their way to bring Mary Jane back, get Mary Jane and Peter back together again, and have even teased a more permanent relationship. So to start a new run with them on the outs again feels regressive. Write her out and then move on or make them a couple. Will They Won't They was fine back in the 70s, but now it's getting tiresome. Back at Tombstones, Hammerhead tells him the Rose is out to make a move, which the Rose does by blowing up Tombstone's gaff. But not before we get an entire page of Tombstone pouring a drink. I know, I know. Pacing. This was a bit predictable on the Rose's part, and to no one's surprise, Tombstone survives. Thankfully, so does his cat. Again, this is some of the best material in the comic. The machinations between the rival gangs, Digger's literalism, and the one-upsmanship all make for some fun reading. It's better than two pages of being shown what a loser Peter Parker is again. He only rolls out of bed at 10.30, he dodges the collections guy, who seems to have nothing better to do but sit on Peter's stoop, he misses a job interview, he orders breakfast for dinner, and he ends up stalking Mary Jane's place. We get it, we get it, Peter Parker is a work-shy, good-for-nothing fop who can't tie his own shoelaces and is unhealthily obsessed with his ex. None of these are good character traits. Tombstone picks Peter up to tell him Spider-Man is going down for his interference. This scene is weird, in that Peter makes no pretense to not be pally-pally with Spider-Man, and even seems to get off on Tombstone threatening him. He's cocky, he makes jokes in Tombstone's face, and shows no sign of being even a little bit intimidated, which seems more Spider-Man's bag than Peter Parker. The issue closes with Tombstone kicking Peter back out of his car, conveniently back exactly where he picked him up in front of Mary Jane's house. Mary Jane, who just happens to be looking out of her window, sees Peter in the street. She's then greeted by a man called Paul and two kids who call her Mommy. The kids, a boy and a girl, look suspiciously like Peter and MJ. After the Two pages of credits, a letters page tells us about the creative team and their upcoming plans, and there's an ad for next issue, and then we get a post-credit sequence, because tell me you want to be a movie without saying you want to be a movie. Dr. Octopus is being held against his will by a mysterious man who wants access to Ox plans, presumably for Spider-Man, but this isn't stated. The end. Well, not really, it's never the end. We're now in a perpetual cycle of never changing, never developing storylines, never altering character development. I got what I wanted. Kind of. And now I wish I'd been careful what I wanted. Did this issue provide £5 or $6 worth of entertainment? Not really. It's a decent package, as the actress said to the bishop, with a thicker than usual cover and a decent length story. But that story isn't really a fulfilling meal. Again, that's an old complaint. But again, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect a story to be semi-complete. 
that's leaving threads to be pulled on over the coming months. This isn't just comics, though. TV is now also full of writers that just can't get out of their own way. More and more I'm impressed with people who can write a 22-page comic that gave the reader everything they wanted. Or a TV writer who could come up with a great Mission Impossible story after that show had already been on the air for five years that told its story and got out within 47 minutes of screen time. That's creativity. Padding your one story out for six issues or ten episodes is starting to feel a bit lazy. This wasn't bad. It was the textbook definition of fine. I don't know, though, that for this amount of money, fine is good enough. Spider-Man No Way Home expected you to have some knowledge of at least two previous Spider-Man movies, two previous Marvel movies, and a passing familiarity with films starring different actors going back 20 years. But if you didn't have that, that film still gave you two and a half hours that worked as entertainment. Maybe this could learn from that. Because the comics aren't the only game in town anymore. We want the medium that birthed the character to be the one that is consistently correct. But we can't always get what we want. But we can get what we need, even if it's from other medium. A commercial break for somebody else's show now follows. Imagine a podcast that celebrates the things we love. Why spend time being so angry and cynical about our fandoms? Join me, the Irredeemable Shag, for a show where we're just trying to be happy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast. Our discussions focus on a variety of geeky subjects that we're passionate about. While the topics will be ever-changing, our focus will be on science fiction, comic books, what it means to be a geek in this world, and other nostalgia-fueled ideas. Life is short. Focus on the positive. Find your joy. The Once Upon a Geek Podcast, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Jack Bone has emailed in. The old Young Lords. Hello, Jack. The Young Lords deserves a reappraisal. I think I'll always hold out a group of young actors reciting rhymes as a mistake that it's tough to recover from. But Star Trek's And the Children Shall Lead is further in the past than it has ever been. So maybe... Let's give it another look. Looking at this episode list, you do realise this came out the week before The Living Legend. I think I see where received fan wisdom about worst episode arises. Whether The Young Lords is a step up or down from The Magnificent Warriors, Living Legend is on top of the wall. And it's not just the quality. Galactica was a different show from that point. Almost every following episode depends on or develops the show's mythology, as serialised as anything was in the US TV we were getting at that time. Even that piece of fluff written to allow Fred Astaire to impress his grandkids contributed Borellian Noman to Baltar's escape. That is exceptionally true. Yes, I know that The Living Legend immediately followed The Young Lords, and I am also aware that the two-part episodes of Galactica are far superior to the single episodes in most cases. That's not to say they're not enjoyable, though. Obviously, Galactica was originally conceived as telemovies, not a TV series. So the two-part episodes have a grandeur and scope to them that the, you know, the one-hour episodes don't have. 
And yeah, the Living Legend is better, and I'm probably going to cover the Living Legend at some point down the line. Jack continues, Okay, overlooking the blow-dried hair and the overall cleanliness of everyone involved, and that thing where if the costume isn't a close approximation of contemporary clothes, the actors don't move in them like that, what was the character was used to wearing every day? Okay, overlooking the blow-dried hair and the overall cleanliness of everyone involved, and that thing where if the costume isn't a close approximation of contemporary clothes, the actors don't move in them like that was what the characters were used to wearing every day, is that what they call 70s damage? It is an okay story. Jack, well, I'm glad you got on board towards the end. <laughs> Thank you for emailing us. Rob McCarthy's emailed in, and of course the most important thing is the fly. The, the most important thing is always the fly. Number one, the fly makes more sense now that I know he was not built to go after Spider-Man, as killing flies is what spiders do. Number two, the fly's costume is a total rip-off of late 50s Kirby hero Flyman. There was really a hero called Flyman. That just sounds like too much coffee, man. Number three, always remember Jameson is worse person in Spider-Man comics than anywhere else. Just like it's a lot harder to make the Hulk turn back into Banner in The Defenders. Don't think I ever really read The Defenders that much. But, you know, it is what it is. And finally, Alex Johans has emailed in, I finished season three of Erwolf, <laughs> which is random. But I like random. This was the biggest non-ending I have ever seen. Well, they didn't really end shows back then, to be fair. Still, at least I now know what you mean when you reference the show on the podcast. Archangel is a badass, though his boss being Zeus is weird. Oh, and I've started reading proper comics. I recommend the comic Money Shot, although it is not safe for work. I probably wouldn't read it at work. And Warlord of Mars by Dynamite Comics. I've not read the comics. I am currently reading The Princess of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. So I'm reading the original novel. You wondered once what comic stuff to cover on the Palace of Glittering Delights. Why, well, I have a request, suggestion, King Shark. It's your show and do what you think is best, but I trust you to introduce me to things. And I've read one comic with King Shark, and I know I love him. King Shark, the Sylvester Stallone voice character from the Suicide Squad. Or the Superboy bad guy. Because they come across as two completely different characters. To me. But, you know, what do I know? <clears throat> Anywho, that'll... Just about wrap it up for this time. Thank you for joining me. If you want to email it, take it to comics at virginmedia.com. If you have any entertaining things to say, random things to tell me, or suggestions to make, it's always a delight to hear from each and every one of you. I'll see you all next time, and everything's going to be okay. More or less. Goodbye. <laughs>